We come to the time of the preaching of God's Word, and so I ask you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to take it up and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. The message this morning will be coming from verses 16 through 18, so let's, let's read now the Word of God together. Beginning at verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from you no secrets are hid. We live our daily lives before you completely known, for you know our hearts, our thoughts, and our desires. You know when we struggle against the flesh, and you know when we yield to the flesh. You know when we delight in the Spirit's presence, and you are grieved when we resist and quench the Spirit. As we come now to your holy word, we ask and pray that you would be pleased to make us receptive to the leading of your Spirit. By your Spirit, empower the preaching of your word and work that which is most pleasing in your sight deeply and effectively into our lives that we may grow in holiness, grow in liberty, and grow in our love for one another and our great God. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So as we were entering into our corporate confession of sin, I noticed this one confession. While the prophets and many of our fathers have given their lives and shared their blood for the progress of the gospel, we who have so much have given so little of ourselves for the advancement of Your kingdom. I, I trust that each week as we come before the Lord and confess our sins corporately, that You take these confessions to Your heart and hear them and pray them earnestly. But as I was looking at that, it reminded me of something I was going to open with this morning, which is I listened this week to Richard Wormrand's Tortured for Christ. How many of you have read or seen the movie or heard that book there. It's, it's a powerful testimony of God's work. For those of you who may not know, Richard Wormrand was an evangelical minister in Romania, a Lutheran pastor. He spent a total of 14 years imprisoned for the cause of Christ between 1948 and 1964 with a couple of years out of prison during that time. He was imprisoned for resisting the communist takeover of the church, and he led an underground ministry during that time in prison to the oppressed believers. He recounts in this book the unimaginable brutality and torture that he witnessed. So those of you who struggle with the brutal reality that the martyrs face, I would recommend perhaps you don't read this, but maybe you should. 
He is the founder, along with his wife, Sabina, of the Voice of the Martyrs, as many of you probably know. And so as I was listening to this book, it, the story was both challenging and encouraging. On the one hand, we are tempted to hear these stories of great martyrs, of great Christians who are walking out their faith in, in such power that we view them as super-Christian in some way. But then we have to remind ourselves, though they were strong in the faith, it wasn't that they were super-Christians. No, we, we have a super-Savior and an almighty, powerful God. But it is helpful as we read these testimonies to correct our perspective. It reminds us that our minor challenges are truly minor. We are greatly blessed of God and blessed with peace and blessed with provision. And we should be truly, truly thankful. It reminds us that our disagreements and our squabbles and our irritations should diminish very quickly in importance as we stop and put those aside and lay those down and repent and turn to our God with thanksgiving. A couple of the powerful quotes from that book I would like to share with you. The first one that really struck me was this. Wormeran writes, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. That's powerful. We've got torture. We've got beating going on and joy in the midst of this. And the other quote is, I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot irons, in whose throats spoons full of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communist. This is humanly inexplicable, he writes. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in their hearts. And so as I was reflecting upon our text today in light of Richard Wormrand's life, his life truly was a life characterized by walking in and by the Spirit. And if you read the book, you will know that there were real struggles in the flesh beyond the beatings that he endured. There were those men in his midst and in these uh, imprisonment, these communist prisons that were broken. There were people who were forced to do things that you would never think they would do, even saying, don't judge me. The torture over overwhelmed me. And as you think about these things, no duty to law could have possibly manifested such loyalty. They served God out of liberty and love and not a duty to the law. And so this morning, as we turn to this text and from Galatians, I would like for us to consider these three verses in three parts. 
First, the work of the Spirit as we walk in the Spirit. And secondly, the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. And finally, what it is to be Spirit-led Christians. The overall theme of these three verses is sanctification. Paul is exhorting the Galatians in their Christian walk, which is a life characterized by sanctification. So what is sanctification? Children? Come on now. Can I have a hand this morning? What is sanctification? Does anybody remember their catechism who's bold enough? No? Almost, almost. Almost had one? What if I... Sanctification is... Where's the hand? God's? God's making... That's okay. It's a lot of pressure. You want to get up here? There's even a little bit more pressure. Sanctification is God's making sinners holy, heart, and conduct. (laughs) I think, uh, what was his name? What's his name? We're thinking about Andy Griffith. Who? Barney. Barney would be proud, wouldn't he? He can quote it. Or if you're a shorter catechism person, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So we need to know what sanctification is and we'll talk a little more about that. But sanctification is a work of the Spirit in us. A work that we are to heed, to follow, and to yield to and not resist but rather we're to give ourselves fully and wholly into, unto it and exercise ourselves in. And so let's, let's consider first the work of the Spirit. Paul writes in verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so given the need for this exhortation, walk in the Spirit, the question should arise at some point, since we have been given the Spirit in regeneration, is it possible to resist the Spirit? The Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. The Spirit is God. Is it possible to resist the Spirit? Is it possible I see, a, I see a slight nod, yes, in at least three ways. And so we turn to Ephesians 4, and we find that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We read, let no corruption, corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. When we continue in our old ways, our former ways of walking and the vanity of our minds. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we yield to the lust of the flesh and we fail to put off the old man. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we lie and when we deceive and when we harbor bitterness, anger, and wrath. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we gossip 
backbite and murmur behind the backs of our brothers and sisters rather than taking our concerns to them. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we tear down rather than build up or exercise ourselves in selfishness. This is something that we all do. And in so doing, we fail at that point to be walking in the Spirit. It is something we need to confess, become aware of, so that we can walk in the Spirit. And secondly, we quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from the appearance of evil. As we look at the greater context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 there, we see that we quench the Spirit whenever we resist those means of grace that God has given to us. We quench the Spirit when we ignore or minimize or mock or are overly critical of preaching. We get this as we see despise not prophesying. That's the context there. We, we quench the Holy Spirit when we fail to heed the exhortations, warnings, admonitions of a brother or sister in Christ who's coming along to sharpen you. We quench the Holy Spirit when we fail to exercise compassion or when we return evil for evil. And so the question is, do you quench the Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. This is something we can easily become hardened at as well. Let's therefore take seriously the exhortation to quench not the Holy Spirit. When we don't grieve the Spirit, this is the promise that comes along with heeding the Spirit, then it is the very God of peace who sanctifies us wholly. And our whole spirit and soul and body are preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we do not want to quench the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, the third way we shut down the Holy Spirit, we despise and insult the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about it that way? In Hebrews 10, we read, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking of, for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour, devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law without mercy under two or three witnesses, of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. And so here in Hebrews 10, we see a strong, strong warning to believers who have continued to sin willfully, blatantly, and consciously without the slightest desire to repent and return to the Lord. He says they have rejected the person of Christ by trampling under the foot the Son of God. They have rejected the work of Christ by regarding as unclean 
the blood of the covenant by which they are sanctified, and insulted and, and mocked and ignored the Spirit in doing so. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us regenerating grace, who applies the fullness of Christ's redemptive work to every believer to reject consistently. That is, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. To reject consistently the overtures of the Spirit's gracious work is the height of rebellion and folly. So when the Spirit is prompting you to put away a specific sin and you continue in it, unabated, unrepentant, then you are insulting the Spirit of God. We love to hear of the mercy and grace of God, but we also must remember the severity of His judgment and the wrath upon the unrepentant. Ask yourselves, have I quenched, have I grieved, or despised the Holy Spirit? If so, then repent and run back to Jesus in true confession and true contrition. He will meet you. He will fill you and send you out to do battle for His kingdom and the world. And it is a battle, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, right? But divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We need the power of the Spirit working in us powerfully and equipping us with spiritual weapons for the spiritual battles that await Seeing then that we can indeed resist the Spirit, we know that we can also therefore yield to the Spirit's leading and prompting. Whereas resisting the Spirit hinders our sanctification, yielding to the Spirit promotes our sanctification. In Ezekiel 36, we find, beginning at verse 25, Then will I sprinkle clean water, Upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, will I cleanse you. A new heart will I give to you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. There is a walking in the spirit that God has promised. And so we, when we consider and think about justification, which we spent a whole lot of time in previous chapters of Galatians considering, we see and acknowledging that in justification there's a very real sense in which we are passive. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us life and declares us to be righteous, graciously giving us faith to believe. We do nothing and contribute nothing. Justification is a gift of God. But in sanctification, God calls us to work out our sanctification in fear and trembling. But it is still God who works in us to will and to do according to His own good pleasure. And so it is still a monergistic work in a sense that we need to understand this is all of God. The Spirit of God changes our desires and we are exhorted to yield to the prompting of the Spirit in these new desires. But we're not just passive lumps that the Spirit is sanctifying while we do nothing. God is pleased to use these secondary means to accomplish the primary work of the Spirit in us. 
We are to mortify the deeds of the flesh and the desires of the flesh day by day, hour by hour. We are to give to repentance and prayer all all of the means of grace that we're given. We're to devote ourselves in these so that the work of the Spirit may be empowered. Believers, as believers, we hate sin. We love God. And so we are obedient and we do do good works. However, as believers, we don't do this on our own or independently from God. Rather, the Holy Spirit, having imparted life in us at regeneration, maintains that life by His continual influence, stirs it up, activates it, and causes it to function in harmony with this spiritual nature. This is the work of the Spirit in sanctification. And this is the exhortation in verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is our Christian walk that we are called to. But we also need to acknowledge in the midst of this Christian walk, there is an ongoing battle. There is, secondly, the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Paul describes this battle in verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. And we need to understand what this means. The battle in the Christian walk is not something primarily external to us. Sometimes we make that mistake. The battle is between the flesh and the spirit within the Christian. And the church can be tempted to miss this in at least two ways. First, we may buy into an exclusive environmental psychology where there is a tendency to blame something outside ourselves for the problems we experience. And therefore, as the church, we miss the opportunity to minister and to speak to the spiritual component that's at war with the flesh. And this is a, a, an ongoing problem. We need to understand the complicated spiritual nature of these battles that we enter. Sometimes there's a physical component, but often there's also a spiritual component. And if you do not address the spiritual component, you're missing part of the root cause or the root cause of the whole issue. And secondly, we buy into the worldly argument of, I'm calling it acceptance. This is the way that I was made and therefore accept me because I'm always going to be this way. We deny the work of the Spirit within us to sanctify us and make us more and more to the image of God. We deny sin and embrace evil when we fall into this error. Error, I mean, revoice might be an example. We deny the spirit of the power of spirit in sanctification, which changes us inside and out. Or in this same error, we we try to win culture by affirming culture. And this never, never works. We win people to what we win people with. And so if we draw people to the church with engaging speeches and friendly fellowship alone, we have become a social club and are no longer a church. 
to use but one example. So in seeking to understand our terms then, I assume that we know what the Spirit is, but what is the flesh that Paul is talking about here that lusteth against the Spirit? And we, need, we go through Scripture to, to compare Scripture with Scripture, and we learn how Paul and how the Scriptures use the term flesh. First of all, it's used for the physical body. In Luke 24, 39, Behold my hands and my feet, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones. But that's just one way flesh is used. It can mean human fallenness. We look at Romans 7, 5, For when we were in the flesh, speaking of that fallenness, being in Adam, it can refer to self-effort. Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh, as we looked at in Galatians 3.3. It can refer to our weakness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, Romans 6.19. But it can also refer to the principle of fallenness that is fully operative in the present life of the redeemed Christian, as we read about in Romans 7. I'm going to read Paul's description here a little bit longer. But this is, I believe, the definition of the way Paul is using flesh here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. There's a complicated argument there, but I think we follow it. This, I believe, is what Paul is talking about in verse 16. This is the principle of remaining sin that resides in every believer and that drives us in the desires of the flesh to do the very thing that our redeemed person doesn't want to do and not to do what our redeemed person wants to do. And so Paul concludes, so that you cannot do the things that you would. And that's part of the life. That's the battle. And in this side of glory, the battle rages because the flesh remains. But in the life of the believer, I'm sorry, the flesh remains. But in the believer, the flesh is not to reign. We're to yield to the work of the Spirit within us. And as Paul also writes in Romans 6, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Sin should not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The battle is one in which we daily pick up our cross and follow Jesus. One in which we daily put off the old man and put on the new. It is active and at work, following the leading of the Spirit. We are to reckon daily ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the battle, in this day-to-day battle, He must increase, but we must decrease. 
We are to nurture and cultivate the Spirit, Spirit's work within us. And so, the third point we want to consider is the life as Spirit-led Christians. And, and brothers and sisters, there is very good news. Paul writes, but if ye be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. As we consider the work of the Spirit throughout our Christian walk, knowing there is a real spiritual battle between the flesh that remains and the Spirit that indwells us, the good news, and it is good news, is that as we yield ourselves to the Spirit's leading, we are not bound under the yoke of the law or any set of applications of the law, but we are free to enjoy the liberty wherein Christ has set us free. Where we were once condemned under the law, we are now free to love the law. Where it was once impossible to do anything that was pleasing to the Lord, for even the plowing of the wicked is sin, the Proverbs tell us. In Christ, as we walk in the Spirit and are led of the Spirit, we are free. The chains of sin have been broken. As Charles Wesley puts it in one of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The picture here of being led by the Spirit is that of being guided to the intended destination. Our chains are free. We're no longer bound in, in sin, and we can do that which is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. We're being led by the Spirit. It's a picture that corresponds perhaps to an animal with a, a rope being put around his neck, being led safely along a path to the destination his owner would take him. How much sweeter and how much more pleasant then is the life of the Christian who is easy to be led by the Spirit, who yields when prodded, who is attuned to the Spirit's call and goes willingly, even happily, even though it's contrary to the natural desires of the flesh. This is the Christian walk we want to find ourselves in. Therefore, as we are exhorted in Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us walk the Christian walk in joy, following, heeding to the leading of the Spirit. And so, those are those three points. And let's, let's just wrap this up and conclude and recap where we are to this point. As we are working our way through this epistle, Paul continues to teach the Galatians how they are to live the Christian life. If they have been justified by faith alone in Christ, then how should they live? What does this mean for them? In many ways, it must be that the gospel seems to be surprisingly free and without requirements. God justifies us because we believe in Christ and not because of any of our own good works. And this goes against our flesh. We want to do something to earn God's blessing. Does this therefore mean that a person can live in whatever sinful way he may choose? And so you hear that question and no doubt, 
You know, the passage from uh, Romans 6 comes to mind. By no means, God forbid, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul tells the Galatians to use their Christ-bought, spirit-wrought freedom as an opportunity to serve and love one another. But Paul has not forgotten his theology. The Galatians were not supposed to start with faith in Christ and end with their works. Rather, Paul points to the source of the Galatian fruit they are expected to bear, their union with Christ. Christ came to pour out the Holy Spirit upon the creation and to bring forth a new creation. There is a meta story Paul is telling to the Galatians here. And as Paul conveys these truths to the Galatians, he does not do it in static, timeless, abstract, doctrinal propositions. No, he tells the Galatians they can love one another only if they walk in the Spirit. And Paul's doctrine is informed by and saturated in Israel's narrative history from Exodus. And it's, we do well to maintain this in the backdrop. And we looking, um, as, as we look to Israel's desert wanderings, it's key to understanding Paul's instructions to walk by the Spirit, <clears throat> walk in the Spirit. Remember that Paul has employed language and images from Israel's past to characterize life under the Mosaic Covenant. We covered this in previous messages. Before Christ came and inaugurated a new creation, Israel was held captive and imprisoned under the law. Galatians 3.23 Paul told the Galatians that under the Mosaic Covenant they were enslaved by weak and beggarly elements of the world. Galatians 4.8-9 In concurrent with this, we look at Isaiah 63, and he explains that when God led his people by Moses, he put his Holy Spirit within him that led them to the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, that led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest so didst thou lead thy people to make them thyself a glorious name. God has always worked in his people by leading them with his spirit. As the psalmist writes, teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God, thy spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. So Israel was led by the spirit and therefore walked by the spirit. Against the Exodus backdrop, Paul's instruction has greater depth. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul exhorts the Galatians to continue upon the path which they have been placed. For Old Testament Israel, the temptation was to return to the bondage of Egypt. For the Galatians, however, the temptation was to return to the bondage of the Mosaic Covenant. Paul did not point the Galatians to themselves to look within, to find the willpower to deny themselves. Instead, they were to look to Christ and to seek the Holy Spirit and to follow the Holy Spirit and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he did this because the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are in a battle. They're contrary one to another. And it keeps us from doing the things that we would want to do in the Spirit. 
We must remember, as we're thinking through our doctrine here, that we don't have two natures. I think casually we often say we have a sin nature and a spirit nature. Only Christ had two natures. <clears throat> Rather, we have one nature, a human nature, that has fallen in Adam, but that is new in Christ if we believe on Him. And so we find that within this one human nature, there is the old man and the new man, which are at, at odds with one another. The old man is nearsighted, and he can only, he can only see and satisfy those immediate things and the easy things to quantify. He, he loves the law and he wants to, he can only see those. And, but as he tries, he finds out that he falls short and cannot do it. However, the new man looks beyond the flesh and unto Christ and considers the law rightly, knowing that Christ has fulfilled the righteousness of the law and that his righteousness, that is Christ's righteousness, hasn't been imputed to him. Therefore, Paul confidently informs the Galatians, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. The Galatians were freed from the bondage of the law and the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. They were freed and had the law of God written on their hearts. Paul wanted the Galatians to know that the power to manifest the fruit of the Spirit did not come from themselves, but from Christ and the Spirit. And as they looked heavenward to Christ, seated in the heavenly places, and relied upon His Holy Spirit, they would manifest His fruit and grow in Christ's likeness. We do well to remember that God did not redeem Israel from Egypt, drop them in the desert, and leave them to fend for themselves. To be sure, the Israelites falsely charged God with this type of faithlessness. But when God redeemed Israel, He provided for their every need. He led them by the cloud presence of the Spirit. When the Spirit moved, Israel was supposed to follow. Israel did not need a map. They simply had to walk by the Spirit. When Israel was hungry, God gave them manna to eat. When they were thirsty, God gave them water to drink. And so the fulfillment of these shadows and types has come with the advent of Christ. God had redeemed them out from under the bondage of the law in the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. And so though we, it, we now enter into an age <coughs> that is characterized by faith in Christ, there is a sense in which we are still pilgrims in the wilderness in this present evil age. But like Israel... God provides for our every need. God feeds us with manna from heaven, which is Christ. In John 6, we read, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And God quenches our thirst with living water. Whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. 
The water that Christ gave is the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And John goes on to explain, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Since these things are all true for us, we can then rest assured that God has provided the sustenance that we need for our pilgrimage through the wilderness of the lives that we presently live. We don't have to go off wandering about looking for Christ in the Spirit because Christ has indwelled us through the Holy Spirit and given us His Word. We can find Christ in reading His Word and in the preaching of His Word. Each and every Lord's Day, we remember that the rock that has been stricken and we, and call, and we call the people to the water that flows from it in the midst of a dry and thirsty land. We distribute manna from heaven as we preach Christ and Him crucified. If our desire then is to walk in the Spirit so that we would not gratify the desires of the flesh, then we must seek Christ by His appointed means, by word and by sacrament, by coming into His presence in prayer and seeking Him in faith. As Moses' face shone brightly from being in the presence of God, so too we are transformed and conformed into the image of Christ as we draw near to Him in worship. As the all-powerful Word goes forth, the same Word that brought word, worlds into existence, God feeds, God provides, and transforms, and sanctifies, and saves His elect. And sometimes I think we make too little of this. It is, it is sad to consider, and I know you have visited or been in these churches where there's a sense that there, are, there is spiritual anorexia in the midst. Pastors are called to feed the sheep, and yet the Word is often proclaimed sparingly, or so mixed with worldly wisdom that it is akin to junk food. Yet in other churches, there's, there's a bounteous table set with all the richness of the Word week after week, and, and the sheep would rather starve than come. We need to know that without spiritual nourishment, we are bound to return to our former bondage in our hunger and thirst. Truth be told, truth be told, we're not going to go hungry. We're not going to avoid eating altogether. If we fail to walk in the Spirit, we will seek the world's table and all it has to offer and gorge ourselves on vain philosophies and entertainments. <clears throat> But as we seek Christ in His Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit and seek Him through God's appointed means of grace, God and Christ through the Spirit has set a sumptuous feast before us. Our triune Lord has prepared a table for us in the midst of our enemies and invited us to sup with Him. We have been freed from the powers of Satan, sin, and death by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, leads us through the wilderness toward the last and final exodus. Christ leads us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, like Israel being led by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In our pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem, we must be led by the Holy Spirit. 
It is true that we are prone to wander, and at times we even try to return to the bondage from which we were redeemed. Therefore, we need to take heed to the exhortation to walk in the Spirit and to follow the leading of the Spirit and thus faithfully fulfill the Christian walk which we are called to. Brothers and sisters, may it be so as we follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for redeeming us out of the bondage of sin and death. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit and for all your appointed means of your abundant grace. We thank you for this church and this people and the love we have for one another in Christ. We pray, therefore, for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that you would lead us by the Spirit. We confess that at times we have grieved your Holy Spirit. We have certainly quenched the Holy Spirit. We have misrepresented the Holy Spirit. We have even ignored the Holy Spirit. Forgive us, we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your faithfulness to us and that you continue to make intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. We thank you for your presence in us. We thank you for leading us. And we ask that you would put us, put in us the longing and the desire and even the compulsion to walk in the way that you are leading and to follow you. Cause us to do this eagerly with the confidence that in doing so, we will be blessed, you will be honored, and others will be affected both within the church and without. And this we pray for the glory of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.